listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Our teaching text today comes from Romans 7, verses 21 to 25, and Romans 8, verses 1 to 6. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can take a seat. All right. Good morning, everyone. It's so good to be with you all. Like John said, my name's Nina Reed. I serve here on staff as the director of apprentice groups, and in the past five years working at Cornerstone have been such a gift to me. I feel like I've gotten to grow and learn in ways I wouldn't have expected. So I'm grateful to be here with you guys today, especially because I love the text that I get to teach out of. We are reading from Romans. Romans is a text I have loved for many years. My husband knows this because it's a frequent subject of my soapbox speeches. That's the thing about seminary students, they usually find themselves on soapboxes. So I love Romans. We're gonna dig in together today, have some fun. So the letter to the Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to a community of believers in the city of Rome. And Paul is writing to these believers with the intention of teaching them how to go from embodying death to embodying life. The church in Rome was a complex web of people. They were situated in the epicenter of the Roman Empire, and they were proximate to wealth and culture and power. And they were from all parts of the city, but they met in probably about five house churches in Rome's poorest sections. So as we picture the letter to the Romans and the people, the believers in Rome, I want you to think of people from all parts of Tulsa, 
South Tulsa, North Tulsa, East and West, meeting together in the forgotten neighborhoods of Northwest Tulsa. And they come from different cultural backgrounds, they have different religious upbringings, um, different opinions, and they're gathered together learning how do we, a different mix of people, follow Jesus together. So throughout the letter of Romans, Paul is going to take the Roman Christians through a series of arguments meant to teach them how to move from embodying death to embodying life. And he's going to do so, he's going to take them through these arguments through rhetorical questions. That means he has the answer in his back pocket, but he's using the question to help the Romans learn something. So we are going to look at one of Paul's rhetorical questions and then we're gonna talk about how Paul answers his own question. What did that mean for the Romans? What does that mean for us? So I'm gonna jump back into our text. We're gonna look at the first half of the text together. Um, Paul's gonna introduce a crisis, and then he's gonna ask a really big, important question. So the text is Romans 7, 21 through 25. Paul says, I find this law at work. Although I want to do Good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then I, myself, am, in my mind, am a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature, a slave to the law of sin. It's really fun, really happy. He set us up well. Okay, so Paul is describing here with vivid, emotional, visceral imagery, the crisis that is being a person. It's the crisis that is existing as a human. And he says, essentially, I'm a slave to inevitable sin and death. What I want to do internally, what I, I want to follow God, what I want to do, I simply cannot follow through on. And who among us does not relate deeply to the crisis that Paul is painting for us here? In very real and painful ways, we might see this imagery of Paul's play out in our own lives as we grapple with relational turmoil with our families or our spouse or friends or addiction or sexual integrity or the temptation to numb or our past sins. Who among us doesn't feel this very real tension? And so as Paul takes the Romans from embodying death to embodying life, he is using this verse to help his audience recognize the crisis that they are in, the present death they are embodying. And that brings us to Paul's question, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? It sounds crushed, it sounds defeated, it sounds impatient. And the question is Paul's way of saying, I need a rescuer. We need a rescuer. We are not getting through this alone on our own feet with our own muscles. So you might be really familiar with this passage. I've grown up hearing this passage 
And for some of us, it's probably really comforting to hear these words out of the Apostle Paul's mouth. He's describing something we really feel. But Paul doesn't want us to camp out here for too long. I contend that this was not Paul's mantra, so it doesn't have to be our mantra. The fallacy of this this section of Romans 7 is that we're up a creek without a paddle, and it's just going to be that way until we die and float to heaven. Paul says that is not true. In fact, when we listen to this text, we know that he doesn't waste one second answering his own question. Who will rescue me? Paul says, grace to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who is the rescuer? Jesus. We're going to talk about how that happens in a moment. So the answer to Paul's question, the solution to inescapable sin is Jesus. And it might feel like we're in Sunday school, like, of course, the answer is Jesus. Yes, the answer is Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the deliverer and the rescuer for each one of us out of this crisis of evil and failure that we find ourselves in, that we feel grief and tension over. So I want to take a moment before we move on to say that if you feel guilt-ridden over past sins, if you are agonizing over your ability to follow through on being a disciple, if you are feeling intimately the weight of your brokenness, there is good news. Paul has put it right here next to the most desperate question that he asks. Thanks be to God. We could stop here, but it gets better. You may have noticed something strange happening in the text. I want to point it out. Paul praises God, grace be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and then he says, so then I myself am um, a slave to God's law, but in my sinful nature a slave to the law of sin. It feels like he goes backwards on us. It feels like he rips the rug back under. He's like, well, good news and then bad news. Now, this is kind of funky, but it's um, any Greek writer does this when they want to say, hey, I have something more to say. So Paul is using good Greek rhetoric. I'm going to call it a forward-pointing interjection. So when he says, grace be to God, he's saying, don't you dare stop listening. Don't you dare stop reading. There's more. So like good Bible readers, now that we picked up on Paul's forward-pointing interjection, we're going to follow that thread to its end by turning the page and looking in the next chapter, where Paul is going to describe, one, how God rescues us, that's the natural next question, and two, what do we do in response? So I'm going to read verses, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Paul says, therefore, this is our big connecting word. It means we're, we're moving on with our train of thought. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, weakened by the flesh, God did, God did, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us 
who live not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is great news, and Paul's answering a question that we ask, how is God going to rescue us? You've told me God's my rescuer. How's he going to do it? By dying on our behalf, by paying the penalty for sin, raising from the dead, defeating death entirely, and thrusting us into a new paradigm. I have found in my studies, if I've learned one thing, it's that scripture tends to answer scripture. So later in chapter 8, Paul's going to kind of explain what he means. There's no condemnation. Verse 34 says, who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God. And he's not condemning, he's interceding. So according to Paul, the only one with authority to condemn actually died on our behalf, was raised from the dead, and is now contending for us at the Father's right hand. So these are not just a jumble of theological terms with big words that Paul's using to sound impressive. This is Paul's lived experience. We know the Apostle Paul. We know his story. The first place he ever pops up in the Bible is in Acts chapter 7, which is the stoning of Stephen, the Apostle Stephen. And Paul's there, but he's not there to protect Stephen or keep people from stoning him to death. He's holding the cloaks of the people who were stoning Stephen. He's passively looking as Stephen is murdered, and he's probably encouraging it. Paul says he's a self-proclaimed persecutor of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. He would drag men and women to prison for believing in Jesus. But now he's writing the letter to the Romans, and he's a different person. He's an ambassador for Jesus to Gentiles. Paul, before Jesus, was not going to do that job, but he's doing this, and I don't think that that's going to happen outside of his relationship with the risen Lord and his belief that he is without condemnation. Those would be some pretty big humps to get over Paul's past. This makes me think of another story that I love um, from the Chronicles of Narnia, which has frequented this stage many times. If you haven't read it by now, you need to. Um, but in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the Pevensey kids stumble into Narnia, and they learn that there's a war going on between Aslan, who's the allegorical figure for Jesus, and the White Witch, who represents evil. And the three Pevenseys on their way to Aslan's camp, one of the children, Edmund, escapes, he goes to the White Witch, and he betrays Aslan to her. And you would think when you're reading that story, you're captivated by it, and you'd think, well, he's a goner. Aslan's just going to let him face that consequence, but no. Instead, Edmund's siblings wake up the next morning. They see something unlikely happening. They saw Aslan and Edmund walking in the dewy grass, apart from the rest of the court. And there's no need to tell you, and no one's ever heard, what Aslan was saying, but it was a conversation which Edmund never forgot. And as the others drew nearer, Aslan turned to meet them, bringing Edmund with him. And he said to his siblings, 
here is your brother, and there is no need to talk to him about what is past. Only Aslan, the one who is betrayed, could call Edmund free, and only Aslan could do the work to make that true, and he would do the work to make that true. So at the end of the day, this is what Paul is conveying to the Romans, that Jesus, the only one with authority to condemn us, is not doing that. He has taken on the punishment himself. Therefore, we are without condemnation. How are we rescued? That's how we are rescued. But this begs another natural question. Should I be living differently? Do I need to form my life around this truth? Paul seems to think so. So we're going to look at the second point. In verse 5, Paul says, Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on the flesh and on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So, with this newfound freedom from condemnation in view, Paul is encouraging the Roman Christians to live in accordance with the Spirit, namely by setting their minds on what the Spirit desires, not on what the flesh desires. I really love Scott McKnight's new translation of this. He says, the one consistent with the flesh thinks about flesh matters. The one consistent with the Spirit thinks about spirit matters. But how do we really do this? How do we put this into practice? What does it mean to stop thinking about flesh matters and start thinking about spirit matters? I see two practices. First, we have to shift our thoughts deliberately, purposefully, over and over again, away from what the flesh desires. And that requires us to ask ourselves a really hard question, what does my flesh desire? And then we have to answer honestly. And then um, we need to resolve to put it out of our minds, our inner worlds, and our habits. As Paul says, put to death the works of the flesh. This starts in the mind. The next practice is simply to dwell on um, the spirit and on spirit matters. So... One of my husband's favorite books is Unbroken by Laura Hildebrand. It tells a story of Louis Zamperini. Uh, Apparently, it's one of my favorite books, too, because this is the second time I'm bringing it up in a sermon. So, Louis Zamperini and two other men survive a plane crash over the ocean, and they are lost at sea on a small inflatable raft They have no food source, no water source. They have to wait for rain so that they can drink, and they have to catch birds in their hands to use as bait and food. They are starving. They are probably going to die, and they know that. But a couple days in, Louis starts doing something. He starts describing in great detail his mom's cooking three times a day when they should be eating food. Soon, Louis' kitchen floated there with them. Sauces simmered, spices were pinched and scattered, butter melted on tongues. They conjured up the scenes in such vivid detail that somehow their stomachs were fooled by it, if only briefly. The conversations were healing, pulling them out of their suffering and setting the future before them as a concrete thing. So only two of those men survived. Not coincidentally, it's the two who were really invested in those conversations about 
food in the midst of their starvation. It didn't worsen or alleviate their hunger, but it did sustain them. For me, this story provides an entry point into what it means to be consistent with the Spirit. It involves turning our minds, our attentions, and our habits purposefully to the things of God. It involves talking ad nauseum about spirit things like scripture, the stories of Jesus, the stories of saints who have gone before us. It involves bringing our sins to life and, uh, and practicing repentance habitually, worshiping together alongside Jesus. It requires turning our thought life, our attention, and our habits to the things of the spirit. Finally, Paul says, the mind governed by flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. So Paul's conclusion to our teaching text today is that the death that we were once embodying as people fully entrenched in inevitable sin has been done away with. Jesus has dealt with that once and for all, and he, the only one with the authority to condemn, is actually interceding for us. So we, joined with Jesus, are free, uncondemned, and invited to cultivate a rich life that is focused on the things of God, putting to death our old ways and living life anew, to, as it were, begin embodying life. But what about when I sin again? What about when I still feel enslaved to my flesh? What about when I feel unrescued from this tension, from my sin, from addiction, from turmoil, from brokenness? What about the times when Roman 8 seems too good to be true? Paul, brilliant as he was, anticipates these questions, and I have three final points for you. As an answer to the question about what about when I still feel enslaved, because we're gonna, Paul says, scripture answers scripture in 8.23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that groaning is a part of the Christian life. This is a Greek word that uh, is more associated like with grief. So if you feel this deep tension and this deep grief, I want to contend that one, that's a part of the Christian life. And two, it's a sign that you've got the Holy Spirit in you. Don't be discouraged. His second point as an answer to the question, what about when I sin? Scott McKnight translates Paul saying, if we hope for what we don't see, we impatiently wait through resilience. This is an encouragement to me. Life on the other side of the resurrection, life on the other side of what we learned in Romans 8.1 is still characterized by impatient resilience. So if the fallacy of Romans 7 exists, that we're up a creek without a paddle, then the fallacy of Romans 8 exists too, that we're never going to sin again and we're just going to coast and it's going to be great. Paul says both of those are untrue. We need to meet in the middle, we impatiently hope in because we believe it will happen and we wait for, because it hasn't happened in full yet, the redemptions of our bodies through resilience. So in the face of sin, we must be resilient. We must return to focusing our mind not on the things of the flesh, on the things of the spirit. 
Paul has one final vital point. As people who know that the Christian life will include, include uh, groaning and require resilience, we have to ask our last question. How am I going to make it? How, how am I going to function? He says, the difference maker, according to Paul, verse 26, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us. He's interceding as well through wordless groans. It's the same word in Greek. The Holy Spirit, groaning as we are, is helping us in our weakness, interceding on our behalf and making a way for us to live the resilient life as we await final full redemption of our bodies. We can do this. We can do this. All right, let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for scripture and for getting to dwell on it together. God, I pray for those of us who feel entrapped and encamped in addiction and sin and brokenness, whether it's thrust upon us, whether it's something we're choosing. Lord, we need rescue, and we need constant reminder that you are our rescuer. So I just pray over the people here, ask that you would provide just intercession for us, Lord. Would you help us turn our thoughts to you, away from what the flesh desires, do that work with you, and also do that work together? And Jesus, we love you, and we trust you. Amen. We're so grateful you listened to this week's sermon at Cornerstone. If you live in the Tulsa area, we'd love to invite you to be a part of our worship community in person. You can find service times and more information at our website. But wherever you are, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you peace.